All right, so Revelation chapter 11, we're going to finish the chapter tonight, Lord willing. I'll be reading verses 15 through 19 of Revelation chapter 11. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints." And those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. So last week, or no, sorry, two weeks ago, right? Is it? Today's what, the 19th? Yeah, two weeks ago. <laughs> Uh, so two weeks ago, we looked at the first 11 verses of chapter 14, the uh, vision that John gets of the two witnesses in the temple uh, as he's told to measure the temple. And we spent quite a bit of time <laughs> speaking about the temple and these two witnesses and that length of time, that 42 months or 1,260 days or three and a half years. And in regarding the temple, just uh, briefly, uh, you know, we, we talked about how the temple is representative of God dwelling with his people. So when, wherever the temple is, that is a representation of God in the midst of his people. And we saw that Jesus is the fulfillment of that because he is Emmanuel, right? He is God with us, God in human flesh, who comes and dwells amongst us. So he is the fulfillment of the temple. And then we also saw that the church is also the temple of God, as it is described in many places in the New Testament as the temple of God because the Holy Spirit dwells in each believer and the Holy Spirit dwells within the church. So we are also a temple. And we looked at some of those passages that speak about the church being described as a temple. So when it comes to the vision that we saw in Revelation 11, the church is seen both as the temple in verses 1 through 2 and also the two witnesses in verses 3 through 14. The reason two witnesses, because every charge is established by the testimony of at least two or three witnesses. So there's two witnesses. They are the church. They represent the church and the church's prophetic uh, ministry of proclaiming uh, the gospel of salvation to believers and judgment to unbelievers. And they are protected. The church is both protected by God, but the church is also vulnerable to persecution of the world. And this is seen how when the temple is measured, John is told, do not measure the outer court. And the outer court will be trampled underfoot for 42 months. And we also saw how the two witnesses are able to prophesy for 1,260 days or 42 months. So the same period of time. And when that time is up, the beast will then be allowed to overcome the two witnesses. However, that victory will be very short-lived. My notes say short-loved. It should be short-lived. Typo. But that victory will be very short-lived 
because their victory is only for three and a half days compared to the three and a half years that the, the two witnesses get to prophesy the people of, who dwell on the earth get to party for only three and a half days before the end comes. So they are getting ready for judgment. And then we, we see then, as we head into this passage, that the last passage in verse 14 ends with this very ominous note as we see the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So just as these people begin to party and the, then the two witnesses are resurrected and there's a small earthquake in the town that kills a few, you know, like 7,000 people, a tenth of the city destroyed, then we hear that voice, the second woe is past, reminding us that there is one woe left, right? So the three woes are the, the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh trumpets. And these trumpets unleash um, many, many judgments. Of course, you know, these last three trumpet blowing, you know, trumpet judgments are some of the worst judgments upon the earth, right? Trumpets five and six unleashed demonic hordes upon the earth. And now we're going to see that this third trumpet brings in the end. We are at the end because we see that the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, just again to repeat things so that they stick in your mind, we need to continue to keep in mind that the seals, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and eventually the seven bowls that we'll see eventually are not separate series of successive judgments. Okay, It's not like the seal judgments happen, and then the trumpet judgments happen, and then eventually the seven bowl judgments happen all on the earth. They are descriptions of the same event. They are describing that same period of time, the church age, 42 months, 1,260 days, etc., told from different vantage points. So in one case, you see the seven seals. That represents God's judgment on the earth, and it ends with the return of Christ. The seven judgments represent God's direct divine judgment on the earth and ends with the return of Christ. Same thing with the bold judgments. Now, as the seventh trumpet is blown, we're going to see now the kingdom is come. The, the kingdoms of the earth become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. So we're going to see in verse 15 that the kingdom is declared. In verses 16 through 18, the kingdom is claimed. And then finally in verse 19, the kingdom is consummated. So after these visions of the church during this period of the trumpet judgments, we finally now get to this seventh trumpet. It is ready to sound, or the third woe is ready to drop. And we see in verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded. So there were seven angels, right? Each was given a trumpet. And the seventh angel finally gets to toot his horn. <laughs> he finally gets to blow his trumpet. He's been waiting, right? He's been sitting here. It's like waiting, 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 waiting for the first six to go. And then, then it's like, wait, hold on. We've we got to give some visions about what's going to happen with the church. And then finally, he says, okay, now you can go. It's like, okay, finally. There goes the seventh trumpet. And we see there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Now, if you remember, when the seventh seal was broken, what happened in heaven when the seventh seal was broken? Silence, silence right. Silence for half an hour, 30 minutes of silence. What happens when the seventh trumpet is blown? 
loud voices, right? There's this declaration that the kingdoms are now the kingdom of God. So we are greeted with loud voices speaking when the seventh trumpet is blown and these voices are heard saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Now, I don't know if it's in the Pew Bible, but if you have a New King James there, in verse 15, the first, uh, the first uh, instance of the word kingdoms there in that quote, do you, is there like a little footnote there, a little number maybe? In verse 15, it says the kingdoms. It may not be in the Pew Bible, but if you have maybe your own Bible here. So I just want to pause here because there's a slight variation between English translations. Now we looked a little bit at this this morning when we talked about, you know, when we were going through John's Gospel, how that entire passage has a footnote on it. It says that, you know, most early manuscripts don't include this. Well, again, if you're using New King James or King James, you'll see the word kingdoms, plural. So the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. If you're using another translation, pretty much any other English translation, so if you have ESV, NASB, NIV, whatever, you're going to see kingdom, singular. The kingdom of, the world, of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And then you've got that footnote there that will say something along the lines of N-U, comma, M. Right? And you're like, what in God's name is that? Well, the NU and the M describe two other Greek texts. Okay? The NU is what they call the critical text. It's named after two um, types of Bibles that are the same. One is the Nestle Alon Greek Test New Testament. The other one is the UBS Greek New Testament. So it's what they call the critical text. The M stands for the majority text. Now, the majority text means that the majority... <laughs> Right, of, text, of, of manuscripts contain the word kingdom. So the majority text is based on majority vote. If, if you have 100 manuscripts and 51 of them say kingdom, then they're going to put kingdom in the majority text. If 51 say kingdoms with an S, then they'll put kingdoms with an S in the majority text. The NU is a little different. I won't go into too much detail about that. Now you might be thinking, it's like, what's the big deal? Kingdoms, kingdom, who cares? Well, I'm just trying to point this out to you because it's here. But um, if you think about it, there's not really much difference. But the singular kind of emphasizes the fact that there aren't really many kingdoms opposed to God. That there's really just one overarching kingdom that is opposed to God and his people, the church. Now, it's made up of many kingdoms, but really they're all on the same side, right? You know, it's, it's, it's all against God. That's that's. That's what the singular emphasizes. But in a sense, you could say the same thing about the plural, right? The plural emphasizes that all of the kingdoms are against God, and now they have become God's kingdoms at the blowing of the seventh trumpet. I just mentioned that because we have that little textual variant there in the, in the, in the New King James, at least, and I wanted to point that out. But kingdom, kingdoms really doesn't make that much of a difference from, from an interpretive standpoint. All we need to know is that everything that was opposed to God at the blowing of the seventh trumpet has now become God's. Okay? That's, how it, that's the best way to understand it. And you may be thinking, why did you waste our time with that? It's like, well. <laughs> yeah, 
you know, you never know. Maybe you might be interested in hearing some of these things. You know, this, these are things I can say in this context that I would never, ever put into a sermon on a Sunday morning. Um, anyway. But what you have here really is, in a sense, a fulfillment of what we see in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 and 25, uh, in that chapter in which Paul is talking about the resurrection and how um, Christ's resurrection, what his resurrection means for us, we see in verses 24 and 25, Paul says, Then comes the end. So this is when the last trump is blown. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God. The Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. So that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. At the final trump, when the final trump blows, that's when Jesus will deliver the kingdom of this world to God, and that's when he will conquer all of his enemies, put them under his feet. So the end of this present age comes when Christ, who is reigning now at the Father's right hand, right when Jesus rose and ascended to heaven, He is seated at the hand of the Father. He, is, he has been crowned. He is king now in absentia. When He returns to earth to reclaim the kingdom, then all of this will come to pass. He will return to deliver the kingdom to the Father. And when that happens, all enemies will have been put under Jesus' feet and have been vanquished. Now, I do want to talk a little bit just about the nature of the kingdom because sometimes you may be thinking, well, you might ask this question. Isn't God sovereign? Right? We teach that. God is sovereign, right? So isn't he kind of king over everything now? What's going on? It's like, why is God allowing this to happen? Well, I can't answer the why is God allowing this to happen question, but I can say, yes, God is king over all the earth. That's what the Bible teaches. Psalm 24.1 The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. The whole earth and everything that dwells in it is the Lord's. Or Psalm 47.2 For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great King over all the earth. Not over part of the earth. Not over nine-tenths of the earth. Not over ninety-nine one-hundredths of the earth. Not over 99,999 one of the earth. He is king over all the earth. He has complete sovereign control over all things. He has complete sovereign control over Satan. Right? The book of Job is a perfect example of that. Satan can't do a thing to Job unless God says, Okay, you may do this, but don't go this far. You can only go this far and no further. And Satan's like, okay. God, Satan is on God's leash, okay? Right? And he can let out the leash as much as he wants, and he can drag that leash back in, just like we do with our dog when she gets a little unruly. It's like, okay, if she's being nice, we'll give her some leash. If she's being a little unruly and jumpy and barky, we'll bring that leash back in. It's like, nope, you come right back close to us. That's Satan on God's leash. But due to the fall, humanity, the fallen angels led by Satan, are in open rebellion. Okay, so God is king over the, the whole earth, but many of his people, many of his creation, are in open rebellion to him. Now you may be thinking, well, why does God allow that? Well, he's not going to allow that forever, right? We're seeing this here at the end of the seventh trumpet. They're all going to get crushed under his feet. 
but he's allowing this for a time being. All, you know, his, all humanity has fallen. The, angel, the fallen angels led by Satan are in open rebellion. In fact, so much so that in 1 John 5.19, the Bible says, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Right? You can think of other passages too. Ephesians calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. Right? You know, so Satan has a lot of authority in the earth, almost to the point where you could say the whole world is under his sway. It is under his sway, but God is still king. God is still sovereign over Satan. So when Jesus comes on the scene as the son of David, the great king, and announces, what is, well, what is first of all, John the Baptist is herald. What is his first pronouncement when he comes onto the scene? What is his first sermon? <laughs> what does John the Baptist preach? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What does Jesus preach when he first comes on the scene? It's not a new sermon. It's the same sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's almost like they borrowed each other's manuscripts or whatever. <laughs> Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. God is king over the, all the earth, yes. But his kingdom, which represents how he exercises dominion, is at hand and it's spreading out. It's coming forth as Jesus comes in. So when he announces the kingdom of God is now at hand, what we're seeing is something called the antithesis or the antithesis. All right, so we've got now the kingdom of God is spreading and it's taking over. It's reclaiming territory that Satan has taken over. The kingdom goes forth and reclaims this territory that Satan usurped. Jesus in all of his parables of the kingdoms talks about how the kingdom starts off small and then it grows and then it becomes this like a mustard seed, teeny tiny little thing. He plants it and it grows and becomes this giant enormous plant that the birds of the air can rest in. So the kingdoms of this world represent everything of this world that is opposed to God. And we see that the kingdom of God is now spreading forth and reclaiming this. And we see this in Daniel's prophecy. So here's where one of the first parts we're going to have you turn. Turn to the book of Daniel chapter 2. As Old Testament, uh, Daniel comes right after Ezekiel. And right before Hosea, I believe. And I'm going to read, in particular, verses 36 to 45. But in Daniel chapter 2, just for context, so Daniel is where? He's in Babylon, right? And who's the king of Babylon at this time? Nebuchadnezzar, right? The guy with the real long name that everyone seems to know how to pronounce pretty easily because it's so popular, right? So Nebuchadnezzar is king, he's in Babylon, and he's terrified because he has this dream. So he has this dream, and he tries to call his people. He's like, you need to help me with this dream. He's like, well, king, tell us the dream, and we'll help you. He's like, no, 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 no. I know your tricks. He's like, you need to tell me what I dreamed, and then give me the interpretation. Now the magicians are freaking out. He's like, how are we going to do this? So the, Nebuchadnezzar gets angry, and he's about to kill them all, and then finally he says, hey, there's one of those Hebrew guys that you brought over. He's pretty good at interpreting things. So they bring Daniel in, and Daniel gives him the interpretation. But the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has is of this giant statue, right? 
And it's this giant statue that has a gold head. It's got silver torso. It's got brass or bronze waist. And it's got iron legs. And then the feet are iron mixed with clay. And that's the world is this dream. What did I have last night that made me have this dream? Maybe I had some bad baklava or something. I'm not sure what I had. But he has this dream. He's not sure what it is. So he, Dan, uh, Daniel te tells him what he dreamed, and then he gives him the interpretation. And the interpretation is that these are four kingdoms. And that's what we see here uh, in verses 36 through 45. So Daniel says, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. So again, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of the statue, but at the end of that, after he sees the success of you know, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay, he sees a stone that is hewn out of a mountain, not made with hands, that comes and it shatters the entire statue and destroys it completely. Now I'm going to give you three guesses. The first two aren't going to count. What is this rock that is not hewn by hands? Okay, you could say it. Jesus. Jesus, exactly. This is Jesus. It's the Sunday school answer. You're always safe if you say the Sunday school answer, right? This is Jesus, particularly like we saw here in verses 44 and 45. The kingdom of God will come and will destroy all the kingdoms of the world. Now we see the same thing later in Daniel chapter 7. You can just flip over a few pages. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. This is the Son of Man vision. 
where the Ancient of Days is there. Daniel gets a vision of the Ancient of Days, which is God. And we see one like a Son of Man comes and bows or comes and receives from him the authority to rule. So in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. In his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, it's, Daniel gets this vision again after he gets a vision earlier in that chapter of beasts. Again, these beasts represent kingdoms, and there's four of them. And the last beast is a very ferocious, terrible-looking beast with huge iron teeth devouring and breaking in pieces, trampling the residue of its feet. It's the same similar vision that Daniel gets in cha- or that Nebuchadnezzar gets in chapter two. It's the successive kingdoms of the earth that will come, and then eventually there will be a kingdom that surpasses them all that will destroy all of them. And again, just as the seventh trumpet sounds, right? The kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. So the Son of Man, Jesus, has dominion over all the kingdoms forever. So now these voices in heaven, back to the voices in heaven, now these voices in heaven that we see in chapter 15, or chapter 11, verse 15, I should say, declare that this age is done. When the seventh trumpet blows, this age is done. It's complete. The kingdoms of this world are now under the eternal dominion of the Father and of the Son. And just as another point of contrast here, notice the contrast between the length of time that the world celebrates the death of the two witnesses. Again, remember when the two witnesses are killed, the, the world throws a giant party for how long? Three and a half days, a very short period of time. How long is the Son of Man's kingdom? Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, right? For, for all time. So the seventh trumpet therefore announces the glorious return of the King of Kings, Jesus, to reign forever on earth. So now we look at verses 16 through 18. The kingdom is claimed. So after the declaration goes forth announcing that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, we see praise begin to break out in heaven. In verse 16, the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God. Now these are the same 24 elders we saw earlier, right? The 24 elders, if you remember, represent the church, well, represent the people of God, the Old Testament and New Testament people of God. They are the angelic representatives of the people of God in heaven. And oftentimes they are falling on their faces, right? It's not like they, they can't walk. It's just that that's when they worship, that's what they do. They fall on their faces and they worship. So upon hearing this declaration that the kingdom of God has uh, now been declared, they fall on their faces and they worship God. This is something exactly what they did in Revelation 4 when those four living creatures, the cherubim, sing and praise God for His holiness, and they say, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who is and is and is to come. Then the 24 elders, they fall on their faces and worship. That's what they do. 
Now let's look at what the 24 elders say. They're worshiping, but what are they saying? Well, we see that in verses 17 and 18. So they say, we give thanks, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should, be, that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. That, oh, sorry, I'll stop there. I'm going a little too far. That was verse 18. So their praise consists in thanking God for claiming His kingdom and establishing His rule, His reign. It's like, you are to be praised, Lord. And we thank You that You have now taken Your kingdom and You have now set up Your reign and Your rule. <coughs> Excuse me. And they thank the Lord God Almighty. That word Almighty uh, appears, I think, like ten times in the New Testament. Almost all of them in Revelation. And it translates a word called, uh, the word is, in Greek is pantokrator. literally means he who holds sway over all things, the ruler of all. And again, this underscores what we said earlier, that God has always been the king over all things, over the whole earth. He is not claiming new territory. right? It's not like you had God in the beginning and then Satan, and they were fighting over this thing called the earth. No, God created the earth. He created the angels. He created the angels that fell. He created the whole thing. It's just that Satan has taken, he has sort of exerted his own sway and now God has reclaimed that territory. They were always his. He is now establishing that rule and reign. Now, okay. Again, New King James users. In verse 17 where we see the one who is and who was and then who is to come. Do you, is there another footnote there? No? Oh, so you're using ESV, right? Okay. That's where I was going to get that. <laughs> okay, there's another little textual variant there. Again, you're going to see a footnote uh, that says the NU and the M omit and who is to come. Like, well, why would they do that? Right? We always talk about God as the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Well, the new, like I said, the New King James footnote tells you that the critical text and the majority text omit that phrase, who is to come. Now, it's quite possible that a scribe has added that. Okay? Oftentimes, a lot of times when you see variations in the text, sometimes they're mistakes. Right? You know, if you've ever copied anything by hand, and you're trying to copy it, and you're going the line, let's say a line ends with the word, Hour. And then you, you know, but then like three lines down, that sentence also ends with the word hour. Sometimes as you're copying, your eyes may go back and you see the wrong word pick up again. You've left off a whole bunch of things. That's one scribal error that you see sometimes happen in the New Testament. Sometimes the scribes are a little more creative and they actually intentionally make corrections. Whereas they say, well, that doesn't sound right. I'm going to fix it as he's copying, right? Now, we've seen in various places in chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8, we talk about God who was, who is, and who is to come. So the scribe probably copies and says, they left out who is to come. I better add that in here to be consistent. That's possible. It's possible that a scribe added that to be consistent. Uh, 
Uh, I will have to say this. I admit that this phrase in who is to come does not have, it has hardly any support in the manuscript tradition. I looked it up as like a very small handful of manuscripts. And you're like, well, why was it added? Well, again, probably for consistency. But if you consider this, why do we need to say and who is to come? What happens at the blowing of the seventh trumpet? Christ comes. He's here, right? (laughs) What do we pray every Sunday when we pray the Lord's Prayer? What's one of the phrases we pray? Thy kingdom come. Now when Jesus is here, are we going to say thy kingdom come? No, it's here, right? So it's quite possible it actually isn't there because why do we need to say it? Who is to come? Because the Lord is already here. His kingdom has come. And as we see, because you have taken your great power and reigned, you have now executed your authority over the whole earth. Now we see in verse 18, back to the text, the actual text, in verse 18 we see what is a day of reckoning here. And look at how that, that, that verse begins in verse 18 where you see, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. Now keep your finger here and flip over to Psalm 2. So we saw in verse 18, just again to refresh your memory, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. And in Psalm 2, we read, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, (coughs) excuse me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. When His wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those all those who put their trust in Him. So Psalm 2 begins very similar to the way verse 18 begins. The nations are angry. And it says the nations are angry, His wrath has come. And here in Psalm 2, we see the nations raging. The kings of the earth are plotting. They're setting themselves up. Say, let us storm Mount Zion. Okay, that's what the nations, the kings of the nations are saying. Let us storm Mount Zion. It's also what we saw at the crucifixion, right? When, When they... When the people got Jesus, when they arrested him and tried him and they, they hung him you know, when he was on trial, what did the people say when Pilate says, what shall I do with the Jesus who is called the Messiah? And they say, crucify him, crucify him. That is exactly what happens here, right? That is the nations of the world arrayed against the Lord and his anointed. But what does God do when the nations rage? In Psalm 2, verse 4. He laughs. 
I, I, just, I would just love to see what that looks like. Right? You know, hear all these people, burn down Mount Zion, and God is up there. <laughs> Seriously? It's like, you puny, I, come on, I mean, I created you. <laughs> I could just do you know, like that and you're gone, right? It's like, he laughs, he holds them in derision. Because what can the collected might of the nations do against God? Nothing. Nothing. They could storm Mount Zion all they want. They're going to get roasted, right? What happened when, when God was on Mount Sinai and He was there getting ready to give the law, right? And the Israelites were surrounded around there. What did they see on the top of Mount Zion? All kinds of thunders and fire and smoke and earthquakes. And, and what were the people like? It's like, well, I'm not going up there. <laughs> They were the smart ones, right? And he said, so you go, Moses. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, the whole line is like, okay, who's going to go up to Mount Zion? Everyone take a step forward. It's like everyone took a step back, and the only one left there was poor Moses. Said, okay, I guess I'll go up to Mount Zion. But anyway, what can the nations of the world do? Nothing. All of the rage of the nations amounts to nothing when that seventh trumpet is blown. And the rest of verse 18 shows us here the judgment and reward, right? That the time of the dead that they should be judged has come. The servants of the Lord, those who fear His name, small and great, will be rewarded. So again, this idea, again, if you remember when you know, Jesus talks about His return in the Gospels, He says, once that day has come, all the dead will be raised, right? All the dead will be raised. The grave will give up its dead. Hades will give up its dead. The sea will give up its dead. And they will come before the one who sits on the throne, and he will judge them. And it will be like you know, the sheep and the goats. Those who have done well on the right-hand side, those who have done evil will go on the left-hand side. The right-hand side will go up to be with God in heaven. The left-hand side will go into where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the time of the dead that they should be judged has come. The servants of the Lord will be rewarded. Now we shouldn't think of this reward as something that is earned something that God is obligated to pay. This is a reward that God graciously gives us for the labors that we do out of faith. So our works do not obligate God to anything. God is gracious and graciously does reward our efforts, our obedience. But this is works done in faithful obedience. And the rest here are judged in, in Revelation. You can go back to Revelation 11. My apologies. The rest are judged. And those who fear your name small and, and, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. The rest are judged. Now we're not shown what happens to them. That's later in Revelation. When we get to that in Revelation chapter 20, we'll see that they are cast into the lake of fire. But for now, we're just known that the, the, the righteous are rewarded and the wicked are judged. And this is another thing that's reminiscent to something we see in Luke's Gospel chapter. 19, you can turn there if you would like. But it's this parable of, in, it, this is Luke's version of the parable of the talents or the parable of the minas, right? Jesus tells it in Matthew's gospel where a, serv, you know, a ruler goes off to a faraway land and he leaves his servants in charge of his house and gives them some money to invest. I like Luke's version better because it matches a little more what we see here in verse 18. But in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27, Jesus is uh, speaking to some people here. And he says, Now as they heard these things, Jesus spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem. 
and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So there's the context. Jesus is going to tell this parable to correct people's thinking about the kingdom of God. So again, as we see, the people think that the kingdom of God is going to come immediately. And Jesus is like, no, not yet. Let me, let me give you a story. Let me tell you a little story. Verse 12. Therefore Jesus said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. All right, who is the nobleman here in this picture? It's Jesus, right? <laughs> Sunday school answer. He is, he is going to a faraway country to receive a kingdom and he will return. So he called ten of his servants and delivered to them ten minas and said to them, do business till I come. We're the servants, okay? We're the servants given gifts by God and told to labor until he returns. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man reign over us. These are the citizens of the kingdom that the nobleman went to receive. Those are the wicked. These are the people who will not bow down to Christ. They say, we do not want this man to be king over us. We'll get to them in a moment. Verse 15. And so it was that when he returned, so now the nobleman returns, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to him who had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept and put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man, or severe man. You collected what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Then finally, verse 27, But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. All right, this is the kingdom. <laughs> This is the kingdom throughout this whole period of time that we're looking at here in Revelation and all this part. part. All right? Jesus goes away to a far country to receive the kingdom. He's away for a long time. We are to work until He returns. He returns. He rewards us for our labors. Even though He gave us the, the startup capital, right? It's not like we took our own investments. He says, here, here's something for you. Use it. And, and, and work until I return. Now, then at the end, those people who did not want to be king over him, what does he say? He says, bring them before me and slay them. That's exactly what we see here in Revelation eleven eighteen. Those servants of God's will be rewarded. The wicked will be destroyed. 
Finally, verse 19, the kingdom is consummated. So now in the aftermath of this great cosmic conquest in which the wrath of God consumes the angry nations, we see heaven opened up again. Verse 19, then the temple of the God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake and great hail. Now, the last time we saw heaven opened up was at the beginning of Revelation chapter 4 when John begins to get these visions of what's going to happen in this period of time. And in Revelation 4.1, we see that after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. So we get these, you know, this heaven opening up kind of bookends, really, if you think about it. Revelation 4 through Revelation 11. It kind of nicely makes a little sandwich of visions that we see here <coughs> with this idea of temple, of, of heaven opening up. And we see here the temple of God with the ark in it. So there's a sense in which we can say that with the end of the trumpet cycle, we're now going to move on to some more, you know, new cycle of visions in Revelation chapter 12 and onward. And really also, if you think about it, Revelation 11 marks the halfway point, right? And there's 21, 22 chapters in Revelation. Chapter 11 is the halfway point. But what began with heaven being opened ends with heaven being opened. And we see here the temple in heaven. Now, this is not the temple in the sense of the church, okay? This is the temple in the sense of what we call the archetype, arch, sorry, archetypical temple. That is the temple after which the earthly temple is pattern after. All right, let me back that up a little bit, okay? Because in, when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he's given directions on how to build the temple, God tells him, build the temple after the pattern which I will show you. What pattern is that? The heavenly temple where God is right now, okay? And that's, that's what's being opened up here is the heavenly temple. And as the temple in heaven is opened, we see the Ark of His Covenant. Now, this is not the actual physical Ark of the Covenant uh, that rested in the Holy of Holies. So, sorry, sorry, Indiana Jones fans, right? You know, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's not, you know, we all know that the Lost Ark is in some warehouse, right? In in Washington, D.C. area, buried under crates and stuff, right? That's where the Ark is. It's not in heaven, No, this is another representation of the ark. But think of what's happening here. What we see here is at the consummation of the kingdom, after the enemies of God and his people have been destroyed, now we see heaven opening up and the ark becomes visible. Now again, going back to the crucifixion of our Lord, what happened when he died? What happened when he breathed his last on the cross? Something happened in the temple. The curtain, right? The veil in the temple was torn. And what is that? You know, when that veil is torn, what, do we, what would you have seen if you were there? You would have seen the Ark of the Covenant, right? Judgment has come on Jesus. The veil is broken. Its axis has been given to, you know, has been opened to God. And we see that the Holy of Holies is exposed. We see the Ark there. And this symbolized that the access to God has been opened through the blood of Jesus on the crucifixion, right? Jesus, our great high priest, he went into the heavenly temple, he took his blood, 
and offered upon the heavenly ark. And you're like, well, where do you get all that? That sounds like you're making stuff up. It's like, no, I'm not. I'm not making anything up. We find that in Hebrews chapter 9. You don't need to turn there. If you can, if you want. I'm not going to stop you from turning there. But Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, talks about the heavenly sanctuary. Hebrews chapter 9 talks about the heavenly sanctuary in verse 11, where we see that Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, the heavenly temple, now with the blood of goats and calves, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, uh, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promises of eternal inheritance. So Jesus takes his blood. When he dies, he goes up to the heavenly temple. He offers his blood on the eternal heavenly ark of the covenant to provide atonement for us, which is symbolizing what the priest did every year on the day of atonement in the earthly temple. So now at the end of history, heaven opens up again and the ark is seen. This is what we see in the end of Revelation when the temple is revealed, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, all things are made new, and God will dwell with his people. So while access to God for eternity is a wonderful thing for the redeemed, for the wicked, not so much, right? When we see the heavenly temple open up and we see the ark, it's, it's wonderful for the redeemed, for the wicked, not so much. Because you notice how when heaven is opened up, it is accompanied with some things here, right? We see lightnings and noises and thundering and an earthquake and great hail. We've seen this language before. This is judgment language. Whenever you see thundering and lightnings and hail and earthquakes and all this stuff, that's judgment. It's a display of natural upheaval, symbolic of divine judgment. Again, we saw this at the crucifixion of Jesus when God's judgment was poured on him, right? The lights went out. It was dark for three hours. There was an earthquake. There were all kinds of things. Again, because judgment was coming down upon Jesus. We saw it again with the opening of the seventh seal. When the seventh seal is broken, after the silence in heaven, we saw hail being cast down to earth. Earthquakes and thunderings and all these other things. We see it with the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And we're going to see it with the bold judgments and all this stuff too. This marks the end of this current evil age. The seventh trumpet marks a time in which the church will no longer have to pray thy kingdom come because God's kingdom is now here. And the seventh trumpet is reminiscent, if you will, of the conquest of Jericho, right? In Joshua, and when Joshua goes to conquer the promised land, the first place he goes is to Jericho. And what do the people there do when they're there? What does God tell the people of Israel to do for seven days around the city of Jericho? They're marching, right? They're marching around the city of Jericho, right? The priests are holding the ark of God before them and they're to blow their trumpets. 
and they're to do that seven days. And then on the seventh day, they're supposed to do that seven times. And then when they blow the trumpets, what happens? The walls of Jericho come a-tumbling down, right? They come a-tumbling down because the trumpet has blown. So the conquest of the promised land, in a sense, you can really say prefigures the return of Christ, right? Trumpets are blown. The promised land is conquered for Israel. Trumpets are blown. The kingdom of God is finally ushered in and the eternal state takes place. The kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ have now, the kingdoms of the world, I should say, have now become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Well, that's it. We're halfway done with the book of Revelation. And in that time, we have seen the vision of the exalted Christ in Revelation chapter 1, where John gets a vision of the exalted Jesus Christ. Then John is commanded to write these seven letters to the churches to tell them to, you know, shape up. You need, you know, what, what is the state of the church? And, and he brings encouragement from our Lord Jesus Christ too. Then we see the eternal praise before God in heaven as, as the heavenly hosts sing God's praise. Then we see the turning over of the title deed of the earth given to the Lamb who was slain from before for all time, the, the one who is the line of the tribe of Judah. And then as the Lamb breaks off these seals, we see the signs of the times as, un, as we see unleashing judgment upon the earth. We see God's elect sealed as the spiritual Israel is counted, is numbered. The, the 12,000, the 144,000 is the, the, the spiritual Israel, the church, during this period of tribulation. And that, one, that multitude will be turned into a vast, innumerable multitude in heaven as they come out of the great tribulation and offer praise to God. And then finally, we've seen the sounding of the seven trumpets here of judgment leading to the return of Christ. And through it all here, we see how God protects His people, right? He protects His people, He preserves them, and He preserves the saints while at the same time executing judgment upon the earth. The saints are not kept from trial and tribulation. Rather, they are kept through trial and tribulation. Very important distinction, right? Again, Psalm 23.4, where the, you know, David prays and he sings, he says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me, Lord. Now, it would be great if that psalm said, and I never have to enter the valley of the shadow of death because you have kept me from the valley of the shadow of death. It's not what it says, <laughs> right? But what we see is that God takes us through the valley of the shadow of death. So God does not keep us from trial and tribulation. He keeps us through trial and tribulation. And for a church undergoing persecution for their faith, they need to know that they will be preserved and that their faith will be vindicated at the end when Christ comes. So next time will be October 3rd, Lord willing. And we're going to look at Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6, as we see a new cycle of visions. As these, the, the, cycle, the visions that we're going to see in Revelation 12, 13, and 14 are called uh, various titles, but they're called symbolic histories. All right, so we're going to see, instead of God unleashing judgment on the earth, what we're going to see is sort of like the history of the world. Okay, it's in the.
vision is we're going to see this vision of the woman, the child, and the dragon. And you're like, what's going on there? It's like, well, you have to come back in two weeks to find out.